Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Isabel Machado and I'll be your host for this episode. Today I have the pleasure of talking to Howard Philip Smith about his book, Unveiling the Muse, The Lost History of Gay Carnival in New Orleans. Howard Philip Smith, welcome to New Books and Gender Studies. Nice to be here. So uh, before we talk about unveiling the muse, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and the trajectory that led you to write this book? I know you've been investigating and writing about the gay history of New Orleans for quite some time now, right? I have, and I used to live in New Orleans. I've always been drawn to New Orleans. Um, As a child, my family lived there for a while. I grew up in Mississippi on a farm, and... uh, New Orleans was such an interesting place. It was so different from anywhere else in the South. So I was very drawn there, just uh, the architecture, the people, the uh, celebrations there. I lived there in my 20s, and I experienced carnival. I experienced gay carnival. And then I moved out to Los Angeles. Once out here, I began uh, gathering my notes and thinking about writing about that period because it was so different and so unique. It was, uh, uh, I lived there right before uh, the AIDS uh, pandemic. And quite honestly, I, I started out thinking that I would write uh, a sort of a historical fiction about that time period. But in order to do that, I knew I would have to uh, talk about gay carnival because it's such a, a important, a huge part of living in New Orleans. So, uh, of course, I would uh, go back to New Orleans uh, every year to visit family and friends in New Orleans. And I started doing research on the gay carnival cruise, and there was nothing. No one really had talked about it, written about it. I I just found that uh, uh, impossible. It was just impossible to even imagine. Completely ignored, I guess, is the way I would describe it. So in the late 90s, I really became serious, uh, and I was in a position where I could uh, really devote a lot of time to putting my notes together, doing research. And um, during the 2000s, I really uh, wrote a lot about it, and um, it was really difficult to find a publisher. Then I got a phone call from Arthur Hardy, who publishes the Mardi Gras Guide every year. This is a huge publication. It's, uh, uh, it's anticipated. Uh, uh, people who live in New Orleans uh, read it. Uh, visitors read it. It's, it's, uh, it's a, a capsule of what's happening in Carnival, what's new, what's old, the history. And he said, Howard, I, I would like for you to write an article on the history of the crew of Petronius, uh, celebrating its 50th anniversary. This was back in 2011, I believe. So I said, sure, I have some notes. Uh, Let's see what I can put together. So I put together this article for him, a a brief article on the history of the crew of Petronius, uh, the oldest uh, surviving gay crew. And I kept writing, kept writing for him every year. And I thought, well, you know, I've written so many articles, maybe I could just put a history book together. So I sent a proposal to uh, a publisher in Jackson, Mississippi, and they were very interested in it. So that was the point that I was able to put together the history, uh, building upon my notes and uh, uh, things that I had uh, found in the meantime, and that resulted in the book. Yes, and it came out in 2018, and it was published by the University Press of Mississippi, right? Correct. They were very uh, supportive. the timing was right, I think. There was a lot of interest. Yeah, as someone who is really interested in the subject of your book, I was really looking forward to reading it. You know, I expected that it would be really informative and interesting, especially for me. Okay. 
but I wasn't expecting it to be this gorgeous. <laughs> to our listeners who, who haven't had a chance yet of checking it out, the book, first of all, it's really big, but it's fully illustrated with beautiful images. You have here photos and all sorts of memorabilia, ephemera, invitations and posters and programs, sketches, costumes. So your book not only tells the story of these organizations and the fascinating people who are behind them, you also have compiled an impressive collection of information, of documents and sources that I'm sure will be really useful to folks writing about this in the future. Uh, can you tell us a bit about your research process? And when you went into this project, is that, did you already envision that this would be the, the end result? No. This was uh, uh, totally unexpected because when I really started writing this history book, I had very few uh, invitations. Uh, there, I, I didn't. I really had nothing. Almost, I had saved a couple of invitations personally that I, you know, I had gone to some of the balls, and then I started digging around, and um, so that was that was a process of almost twenty years, Isabel. I have to admit. But it's getting back in contact with people, people who survived AIDS, people who had uh, hoarded their precious invitations, uh, uh, admit cards, their posters. Um, so it was a lengthy process. Uh, thank goodness people uh, saved these things. This is even after Katrina. Some things were lost in Katrina. But uh, as you could see, a lot of it was rediscovered. And of course, now these materials are in uh, uh, special collections in New Orleans. For example, the Louisiana State Museum, the Historic New Orleans Collection, Tulane Special Collections, University of New Orleans Special Collections, Public Library. You, you know, this stuff is uh, accessible now for people. Um, wow. So it's, it's just such a complicated process. Uh, thank, I, I don't think you could write this book today, and let me explain why. Because I personally was involved with it. I, you know, I attended balls. I knew some of these people. So as I was doing research, I remembered names and I went online and I was looking for people and I found some of the people I knew and they connected, reconnected me with people. Um, uh, that's one thing. Another thing is just being a good historian. You have to be meticulous. You have to study the images. Um, in order to find out what they are, who they are, what are they referencing. A lot of times these uh, artworks, uh, uh, these invitations are based on artworks. And, you you know, that way you can kind of develop uh, a sense of the complexity of gay carnival, which relates to uh, traditional carnival in New Orleans. Let me let me tell you one um, one uh, good example of of uh, just being a good historian. Several of the uh, invitations and posters for the Mystic Crew of Apollo, uh, which uh, uh, AIDS uh, ended that crew. But it, it had a, a, a nice run in the 70s and 80s. Uh, the guy signed his name. The artist signed his name. Uh, Toluto was his last name. I had no idea who this guy was. I'd never heard of him. Toluto, so it's uh, Italian. Um, I looked in the white pages. There were three people named Toluto in New Orleans. I wrote all three of them, and one of them happened to be the guy's brother. So he contacted me. He had been a king in the Mystic Crew of Apollo. I was able to um, uh, get some donations for him for the museum. Of course, there's an exhibit going on right now about gay carnival based on my research and working with the Louisiana State Museum. So this, um, this member, this former king of the Mystic Crew of Apollo, had his king robes, which we later found out was actually uh, part of, because the, the uh, uh, guy who created the crew was also involved with the straight carnival crews. So this was the raiments, if you will, of a former king of a traditional crew recrafted for the gay crew. So it's you. You start looking at one ball, one crew, one ball, and this door opens up, and it's just so many things you could. I could have uh, each ball, uh, quite honestly, that I talk about in the book. I could have written another book about it. You know, 
Well, but as to our listeners, to folks who may not be really familiar with Mardi okay. Gras, because okay. we're here talking, because we've been to many polls. Yeah. But what are these Mardi Gras crews, uh, also known in Mobile, Alabama, as mystic societies? And why, how are they important in New Orleans? Well, Mobile is, uh, is part of the story for sure. Um, let me just tell you about Carnival comes from Europe. It's caught up with the Catholic Church. It's part of um, uh, the uh, European uh, history, celebrating Carnival. Uh, it's the season uh, right after January the 6th, which is Epiphany, which is a Catholic holiday, uh, the Feast of the Kings. Uh, in France, they have a king cake that, uh, for January 6th. And in New Orleans, of course, was French. So this trans was transported into the New World quite easily. And... Um, the population in New Orleans was mostly Catholic, so they really, since the founding of the city in 1718, they grew to expect to celebrate Carnival every year. Uh, it wasn't very organized until the mid-1850s. This was before the Civil War. And um, a group of guys had uh, moved to New Orleans from Mobile, and they were used to, you know, a this kind of secret society, which is just, it's all fun, you know, like, oh, we're going to form a group, we're going to be secret, but we're going to parade and call ourselves, you know, something fantastic. Well, they uh, formed the first Mardi Gras crew in New Orleans in the 1850s called the Mystic Crew of Comus. And this really was the template. This became traditional carnival where a group of uh, uh, citizens of New Orleans would get together and form a secret society. They would have extravagant balls where they would debut their daughters. That was their entree into society. And they also did a parade. Um, so Comus was the first one, then Rex, and then Proteus, Momus. All during the uh, latter half of the 19th century, these uh, groups, these crews, became very... Um, very focused, and they had uh, invitations, lavish I invitations printed in Paris. They had gowns for their queens fabricated in Paris. They had all these floats at night. They would have their wonderful parades, all based on mythology, literature, nothing religious. So it's, it was always fun. It was always mysterious. It was always in jest. And the population just went crazy. They loved it because they had this fantastic tableau vivant, let's say, in the streets. But the balls themselves were private. Uh, not everyone could go to the balls. So that tradition kept going um, during the uh, 20th century, but a lot of people were excluded. For example, the black population was excluded. They formed their own crew, the Zulus. Um, the bourgeois uh section of New Orleans, they were not allowed into the elite traditional crews. They formed their own, like Bacchus and Endymion. And then in the late 50s, the uh, gay uh, crews were formed. Mm -hmm. I hope that makes I, sense. <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you for that, because I just realized we've been talking about crews, crews, and if somebody is not familiar with Mardi Gras, they could have been a bit lost. It's an, essential, it's an essential term. You can't talk about Mardi Gras without crew. It's just a, uh, it's just a club. Mm -hmm. And it's something that has sort of like a social uh, implication too, right? People are... Uh, will tell you what crew they're from. You can sort of like make assumptions about who they are and where they come from by knowing which crew they belong to. I'm really intrigued by your title, right? You note uh, the Musier is a reference to Cleo, Muse of History, who you describe as a selective and hateful creature. Why do you call this a lost history? And why was it important to you to recover or unveil it? Well, uh, of course, I had a personal interest in it, but um, I strongly believe that the history of Carnival in New Orleans was incomplete. If you were to create that pie chart and say, okay, here are the traditional crews, here's the black crews, here's all these other crews, the gay crews were absolutely ignored. Literally hundreds of books have been written on Carnival. Very few even mention gay Carnival. So for me, and you know, it could have been anyone, but you know, I took the time 
to write this, uh, to gather all this information. And now we have this product, which all of a sudden gay carnival is legitimized in a way, because now we have a history. Now we can look at it. We can say, oh, all of this stuff exists. We, uh, we are forced to uh, add gay carnival to the history. History has, Cleo has been selective because gay carnivals were left out. So I wanted to, you know, I wanted to make this reference because um, it's uh, uh, historical. It's, it's just kind of, um, you know, uh, I think mm-hmm. it's a good, good, good uh, uh, mix here. Yes, yes. So when you begin your book, right, before you dive into the history of these gay crews, you contextualize your story by painting this vivid picture. You take us to the gay New Orleans of the 1950s. Yes. You describe New Orleans as a mecca for gay men, especially those of the South. And you describe Bourbon Street as a nexus for all things gay. And a description that I, I find particularly beautiful, you tell us that it was the first stop after the closet door was finally unbolted. Can you explain that? Well, it was true for me. (laughs) It was true not only for me, but for hundreds of gay men in the South, all over the country, really, but especially for the South. You step outside of New Orleans and Louisiana, and you're in Southern Baptist territory. No one celebrates anything like they do in New Orleans. Uh, It's just a joie de vivre. It's a very different flavor there. but let's, let's make no bones about it. The 50s were a troubling time for a lot of subcultures, especially for gays around the country with Joseph McCarthy and his Red Scare. His uh, Now we know there was a Lavender Scare where they were uh, ferreting out homosexuals from the government. New Orleans enjoyed um, uh, an almost a paradise in the early 50s because the bar owners in the French Quarter, the gay bar owners, paid off the police, paid off the mafia, and they were able to express themselves culturally, especially uh, on Mardi Gras Day when you could be in costume. And for a lot of gay men at that period, this meant drag, you know, being in costume as a woman. So they were able to walk the streets like that instead of being arrested. You know, any other time they would be arrested. So there was this... um it was this grace period, and the more I research this, I have another book coming out next year, but I, I go more into detail about how this, how the early 50s were very different from the rest of the country in New Orleans. Um, uh, Bourbon Street was very important. I'll tell you why, because there were several bars on Bourbon Street that welcomed uh, uh, gay, the uh, gay culture into it. One especially was Dixie's Bar of Music. She was a jazz uh, musician in, during World War II. She was a lesbian, and she uh, welcomed uh, gay men into this bar, and she protected them. Uh, for example, when uh, the last Yuga, crew of Yuga ball was raided in 1962, a hundred men were arrested and, and uh, put in jail. She gathered money and bailed everyone out. So she was a very strong presence in the gay community of New Orleans, and gay men felt that they could, uh, they had a place to go and meet other gay men at this particular bar. There were several other bars too, of course, but this was the main one. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. as you note here, this uh, paradise didn't last much longer, right? Tell us about these attempts to quote unquote clean up the yeah. French border from what they perceived as a moral corruption. And there is also uh, subsequent homophobic violence, right? Yes. Um, let me just state, let me start this on a positive note. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I think you could say the, the, uh, the, uh, the door had been open. The closet door had been open. There was really no going back. I mean, uh, there was such a vibrant uh, gay culture in the early 50s. There was just no stuffing it back into the closet, for one thing. But the district attorney and the mayor, they decided in the late 50s to clean up the French Quarter for the tourists. Uh, so they didn't want all of this, um, uh, you know, people in drag or, you know, that kind of thing in the street. They really wanted to clean it up because they wanted, they were trying to craft New Orleans as a tourist destination. So the gay men 
who had been celebrating carnival with private parties and things like that felt that the French Quarter had become too dangerous. The police, uh, they did, um, what do you call it, debating. They would go into bars and, you know, if you even seemed gay, they would arrest you, you know, um, to try to snare you. Um, the other thing is that some of the college students in town decided, you know, they got a whiff of what was going on and said, oh, well, let's just, uh, let's make a sport out of uh, gay bashing. And, uh, you know, you see a lot of that today just because of the uh, political atmosphere. So, uh, yeah, a young man was killed by some college students. They baited, they went into a bar, baited him, met him in the street and uh, started fighting him. He fell and um, uh, hit his head and he was, uh, he, he died. Um, Fernando Rios was his name. And at the trial, the defense attorney for the uh, students said, well, he's gay and his skull was too thin. It's his own fault that he was killed because his skull just wasn't strong enough to, the, to withstand, you know, these attacks. I mean, oh. how, how absurd. Anyway, there's, there's a couple of books out on that. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. My buddy Clayton Dellery has written a, a very nice book on that. But you can see it was very... Um, it was very tense. It was very dangerous to be in the French Quarter in the late 50s, in the late 50s. But like I said, uh, things had already started popping when it came to celebrating Carnival because the gays in New Orleans took Carnival. This is my Carnival. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do what I want to do with it. So they decided to keep celebrating, but they went uptown. They left the French Quarter. Several of the guys had, you know, they, they had houses uptown, upriver in the Garden District. And they started having their carnival parties there where you could come in costume, you could be in drag. And probably, I mean, most probably, just in jest, they said, oh, we're going to form our own crew and we're going to have a king and a queen. We're going to have this big drag queen is going to be our queen. But then they thought, let's, let's really do it. Let's just make our own crew. What the hell? You know, so they did. In 1958, they formed the first gay crew, the crew of Yuga. And uh, they had a, a ceremony. They crowned a queen at midnight. Two of those balls happened uptown. The second ball was really out of hand because hundreds of people attended in costume and the neighbors complained. So they had to go uh, somewhere else to do their balls. The third ball was out on the lakefront and that didn't work out either. They were uh, uh, so they had to find a, a, another place, which was a dance studio in Mattery, which is a, a suburb of New Orleans. And here they had two balls, but the last ball, the police raided uh, the ball and arrested most everyone. So over uh, about a hundred people were arrested, if you can imagine. Um, and uh, that really spelled the end of the crew of Yuga. But right before the 1962 Yuga Ball, this crew of Petronius had been formed. Uh, younger, you know, uh, a lot of people uh, uh, attended these balls, so the younger guys said, well, let's form our own crew. So that's that was tradition. They just kept uh, forming crews, and uh, Petronius is still with us today. Uh, they survived. Um, of course, many of the people in Petronius were at the Yuga Ball and got arrested. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, so they had to regroup. They had to. They thought, "What are we going to do? How can we survive?" And they they landed on a very clever solution. And um, one of the um, prominent members of uh, Petronius, who's still alive and live, lives in Mobile, William Woolley, was captain in uh, Queen of Petronius. He formed his own crew later, the Celestial Knights. He came up with this idea: let's let's petition the state to have our own carnival organization. Comus, Rex, all of those traditional crews, they have a what's called a state charter, where you're a formal Mardi Gras organization. And when they got this uh, application from the crew of Petronius, it was only men. But of course, there's only men in the traditional crews. So there was nothing odd about it. So they approved it. So the crew of Petronius became a legitimate carnival organization in the late 60s. 
Uh, so so I, I've had heard of the story of the raid before yeah. because I watched the documentary, Tim Wolf's documentary, which I highly sure. recommend to our listeners. It's called The Sons of Tennessee Williams. Uh-huh. And I, I was wondering if this is a story that is so important that's been retold so many times. Was it hard for you to separate fact from myth in the retellings of this raid? Well, let's face it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, we need myths to create history. Yeah. Stonewall Inn today is, is what really happened. We don't really know. <laughs> Everyone I talk to says something different. And of course, mm-hmm. all of the older people that I talk to, oh, I was there. I mean, I even joke with people. I said, oh, I was there. You know, <laughs> uh, it's, it's a lot of myths. And I think that's important for um, mm-hmm. identity building these days. Uh, what really happened is... is uh, I try to state facts as much as I can. All of you uh, historians out there, you have to stick with facts. What are facts? Well, um, for example, um, uh, I I didn't want to argue with, uh, this was the crew of Olympus, the founders of the crew of Olympus. And uh, they were saying, well, no, our first ball was in 1970. And I said, no, it wasn't. It was in 1971. I was looking at the first invitation. It's written right there. But I wasn't going to argue with them. You know, this is a fact. So the fact was that um, the newspaper published a story about the raid and published all of the names of the people who were arrested and their addresses. And a lot of those people lost their jobs. The guys lost their jobs. So that I know particularly happened. But um, where it gets really interesting is Legend, legend has it that some queen who was very upset, who wasn't invited to that last ball, called the police and complained. I have no evidence of that, but that's part of the, the mythology of that. Mm-hmm. Also, the people who escaped, um, uh, Bill Woolley, the, the one I mentioned earlier, who was uh, dressed up as a woman, and his date, who was dressed up as a, uh, an Indian, they escaped, and they knocked on a door, uh, a house. They ran up to this house, and this poor old woman who could barely see, uh, well, Bill Woolley said, oh, please help me. My date got fresh with me. I need to call a taxi or something. So he was able to call a taxi from this old lady's house and uh, escape. So um, is that true? Uh, probably. Uh, I, You know, it's just... It's just a nice flavor to this whole thing. Um, uh, I, I, I report it, but, you know, I don't have facts. But that's, that's, that's. Uh, but it's, I think it's, yeah, you were right. It's just as important, right? The mythology that we build around our stories, and especially when you're talking about marginalized communities. Yes. These origin myths are, are, are really important. So then we, we go on on your book, and, and I know that we get to the mid-80s. There are already over a dozen gay crews. Yes. And you even call it uh, the golden age of gay carnival. How yes. is that? Well, one speaks of the golden age of traditional carnival in the late, mm-hmm. uh, late 1800s. That's when so much money was spent on costumes. They were so lavish. The balls were so big. The crews had memberships of 30, 40, 50 people, and they could devote the whole year to making costumes and um, everything for their ball. So, and it was fierce competition. They loved it. Um, no one, everything was secret. The theme of the ball was secret. Um, you know, they devoted a lot of time and effort to outdo each other. And it was all in fun, but they were very serious too. And um, uh, let me just say that now, nowadays you can buy tickets to different balls, but back then you couldn't buy a ticket to these balls. You had to be given, or as I say, someone in the crew had to bestow a ticket on you to be able to go. <laughs> so it was really this, this society where, um, you know, no, there were no surprises. We knew exactly who was going to come to these balls. And there were hundreds of people who would come to the balls. In the 80s, most of them took place in an auditorium downriver in Chalmette, which was a very conservative area of town. And that's a whole other story. 
But uh, this this definitely was the golden age. And of course, uh, because gay carnival emulates traditional carnival, everyone in the audience had to be in tuxedos and ball gowns. This was very rigid. Very few of the crews allowed any kind of drag or anything like that. And I've seen people who would try to attend a ball and not be in a tuxedo and be turned away. So in in contemporary uh, LGBTQ organizations, I know you have to, uh, uh, you know, respect the dress code, but you can pick whether or not uh, you will be in a tuxedo or tails or a ball gown, regardless of your biological sex. Was it like that back then or were they strict with gender codes? Most of them were strict. Uh, Even the Mm -hmm. lesbians had to wear gowns. but today, but today it's not so much. No, it was pretty rigid. I, I just that it was just the tradition. Now, okay. a couple, couple of the crews, like Petronius, for instance, allowed drag. That was the only other option. You could come and drag if you wanted to, and women could wear tuxedos, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Yes. But um, it was um, it was very serious, very serious. But as a friend of mine reminded me when I was going to one of those events, he said, "Well, people can come and drag, but not trashy drag." <laughs> You have uh, to be dressed in a ball gown. So was it like that, or yes, it, uh, I, it wasn't flashy. No. <laughs> okay. Well, the I tra- said trashy. Trashy. The yeah. Tra- the, <laughs> the flashy stuff was on the stage. That gotcha. everything was focused on the stage, and these balls were just so extravagant, so tongue in cheek, so clever. You know, they made fun of everything, and it was just uh, it was very. Um, uh, amazing! It was amazing. But uh, well, also we're, we're in such a positive note. But there is also tragedy, right? Uh, in the eighties, right as the eighties progressed, we had also the AIDS crisis. How did that, that affect uh, gay Mardi Gras, and how did folks recover? Well, that's that's really interesting. Um, uh, I'm I'm really surprised that Gay Carnival survived, just uh, based on everything that I was looking at. By 1985, uh, in the ball programs, you know, they printed programs. They would uh, you would see at the beginning of the programs in memoriam, you know, to members of the crew who had died, and it was devastating because so many people in the crews died. The crew of Apollo, for example. Uh, uh, ended, you know, uh, it just couldn't go on. Uh, many of the crews, uh, I think only four of the crews, uh, survived. Um, but let me, let me say this because the gay community was so organized with these uh, carnival crews, there was already a mechanism, uh, that existed to mobilize and help their brothers who were suffering from AIDS. And, you know, women were a very big part of that too, but they were able to mobilize and create uh, hospices and raise money. Um, I think there needs to be more research, but I think New Orleans probably was ahead of the curve in in, uh, uh, even New York and San Francisco with this type of thing. Because they had the crews, they could immediately, instead of raising money for uh, uh, fundraisers for their costumes and things like that. They were raising money for uh, to food services, things like that. Mm-hmm. So this was these crews. We were when we look at them at the the fabulous spectacle. They were also an important vehicle for organizing, right? Yeah, yeah. They just said they 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 were there, ready to go. So they just switched their priorities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, but uh, most of these crews that we're talking about so far, um, uh, before this period, it's this wasn't a very inclusive uh, thing, right? In terms of gender or race or even socioeconomic class, those were mostly privileged and white men. But in 1980, we have the first uh, lesbian crew. Tell us a bit about that and about the lesbian world in New Orleans. You sort of you already mentioned Dixie, but I, and I was fascinated by your description of the lesbian bars in the quarter, in the French Quarter, already in the 1950s. 
Well, let me just start out by saying, because um, I was thinking about this last night, I, I'm just so sad because there are no lesbian bars in New Orleans anymore. And I just remember in the, you know, the 70s and 80s, there was such a vibrant lesbian um, society in New Orleans. There were so many lesbian bars, and I had so many lesbian friends, um, not only in the French Quarter, but adjacent to the French Quarter. Some of the first gay bars in the, the Marigny, which is a, a suburb downriver, were lesbian bars, even out in Metairie. Um, there's a, a little place called Fat City. It's a, a small segment of Metairie, close to the airport. There were lesbian bars out there. Um, and these lesbians were integrated into, gay, into the gay community. They were there raising money. They were, uh, they were everywhere. They were, um, I just remember, oh, and they opened restaurants. There was a, I even worked at, uh, there was a small restaurant in the Marigny called the Apple Barrel that everyone uh, came to. I was watching a program uh, a couple of nights ago. I guess this is in um, Chelsea, maybe, in New York. Oh, they had this uh, this guy and this gal. They were uh, queer, and they they created this queer restaurants where queer it was queer space where queers could come and feel comfortable. And I said, my God, we did that so many you know decades ago. This was a queer space by default. Uh, everybody knew about this little restaurant. Everyone congregated there. Everyone talked about the balls. They talked about drag shows. They talked about everything. So, um, yeah. The, and I, I think once uh, AIDS really hit and so many of the, uh, the, the lesbian population got older, they left the city, and um, I, I, I miss that. Uh, I, I really miss that. And I think, I hope there's, there could be a renaissance of, uh, you know, mixed clubs, but more prominent lesbians. I know there's a lot of lesbians in New Orleans, uh, and I think... They use social media to do events and things, which which makes sense to me. But you know, I miss we had the bars back then. That's how we met each other. You know, that's where we mm-hmm. went to to see friends. New Orleans was a a small community back then. Even uh, Isabel, years after I left the city, every time I went to town and went to Lafitte's Bar on Bourbon Street, I would walk in and go, "Oh, Howard, I haven't seen you in a long time." You know, it's it's it was that small still. <laughs> But and the but the first uh, lesbian crew was the crew of Ishtar. Yes. Mm-hmm. And when were, were they formed? Do you know the context of how they began? Well, um, I do. Um, you know, it's New Orleans. You just want to celebrate carnival, <laughs> and they 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 uh, um, uh, a, a lot of the lesbians had uh, gay men friends. It wasn't really a segregation like that. You know, it's like it, everyone congregated in the French Quarter. Everyone was friends. So they said, well, uh, the prominent bar owners and restaurant owners, they got together. Even though they had, you know, rivalries between their bars and things, they came together and formed this crew. Um, uh, Just looking at the list of of people in Ishtar, they all came from different places in New Orleans. Uh, Some owned, owned bars, like I was saying, but they came together for uh, carnival to celebrate carnival and they used a lot of gay men to help them um you know organize and get, and get their ball going so there was really kind of this symbiosis you might say mm-hmm. but these crews were also um what i from what i read in your book until the 1980s they were sort of racially segregated right only in the 80s that the crews began to accept black people but it took until 98 for the first African-American LGBTQ uh, crew to be formed. Can you tell us about that and about the experiences and, and the exclusion of black queer men in the city at the time? Well, it's, it's definitely uh, something uh, to focus on. Let me just be blunt about it. Uh, mm-hmm. This is tr- the tradition in the South. Everything is, is pretty separate. Um, I grew up with that. I don't agree with it. Um, my uh, paternal grandmother was a sharecropper. She had to take care of her kids. And we had uh, black family friends growing up on the farm. I mean, that, that's just the way I thought of things. But it really hit me in the fourth grade. You know, I grew up seeing colored 
restrooms. You know, everything was separate. Um, when I was in the fourth grade, that was when desegregation took place. And, you know, it's, we're still working on that in the South, I think. Um, I just don't understand it. Um, and so some of that translates into the traditions of New Orleans and Carnival. Um, and that was a hard uh, wall to break through. Um, however, uh, very slow to, um, to manifest itself. I was just thinking of a story in Celestial Nights. This was in the early 80s. Um, several black members uh, in this crew. And I remember uh, Bill Woolley, who was the captain, telling me, I think this is in the book, too, um, the queen was black this particular year. And so some of the guys wanted to sabotage the queen's dress. Now, the way Bill tells it, it's just because she was a black queen, you know. So he was furious. He said, this person, Alan, I think was his name, has worked the hardest this year. He deserves the best support from his crew. So Bill went out. They had cut the dress or something. It was too short. It looked horrible. He went out and spent the rest of the money that was destined for the, for the ball on fabric to redo this dress so this queen could really shine. And that's the kind of, you know, there are people that, that stepped in and supported this thing. Um, another real uh, hero in my mind, um, uh, probably should be a book about him, is Michael Hickerson. And he was in Amun-Ra. He was in uh, Polyphemus. He was in some of the early crews in the 80s. And he, back then, he saw that a need for a black crew. And he, uh, he tried to do it in the 80s. It didn't happen. And there is a black crew now, Mwembo, um, sort of based on their African heritage. Um, but the integration of blacks into the gay, into gay society has been difficult. And uh, I think um, it's just the vestiges of this Jim Crow thing that we're still fighting there. But even though we state that within the larger context of gay culture, gay society in New Orleans, there's no problem. There's really no problem. Now, you will see a lot of black and white men uh, forming couples. Mm -hmm. And uh, even, uh, I would even say in the late 70s, early 80s, blacks were more or less excluded from the bars in the French Quarter. And that took a while for that to change, if you, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. now, now, I had a lot of uh, uh, mixed friends, so... I would go, of course, there was, there's a whole uh, side of uh, gay culture in New Orleans, the black gay bars, which, you know, I know some of that. Uh, I did visit those um, in the 80s, and those were very interesting. But then you get the flip side of, of this, where the, uh, just the uh, completely black clubs wanted to exclude white people. Mm -hmm. You get the reverse of that. It, it brings to mind, and, you know, it, it's... It's kind of uh, reverse, but it's the same thing, but legitimate in a way. It's it's a conundrum. I have a uh, I have a friend out here in Los Angeles who was dating. This was in the nineties. Who started dating a black guy, and of course, there's no problem out here. But uh, for July Fourth celebration, there's a big black uh, uh, festival on the beach. I forget what it's called, but it's like a July Fourth celebration, and it's just black. So, of course, my friend's boyfriend wanted him, you know, he's white, wanted to take him to this festival. So he encountered this discrimination at this, at this festival where the black men would come up to um, his boyfriend and say, why can't you find a black guy to date instead of a white guy? This was in the 90s. So uh, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, but you have to, you have to, you have to be present. You have to. It, you have to try, you know, to to um, join these uh, clubs and um, see what happens. So, um, do you think things are more integrated now in New Orleans Gay Carnival? Um. Well, <laughs> it's hard to say, Isabel. Mm -hmm. um, I would hope so, but you you do have this tendency to be either white, all white, or all black. 
It's mm-hmm. um, and uh, I'm just happy to see a lot of uh, women, a lot of uh, straight women in the gay clubs now. That's been going on for a long time now. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I think that's the first uh, first interesting thing that's happened. And I think if there was um, someone who really wanted to join a club. Uh, it's it, it's all a process. You have to become friends with the guys in the club. They have to, you have to uh, 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 petition to become a member. Um, but you know they're struggling with money uh, and membership. So I, I think that's uh, that could help with that. Uh, now another thing I have to mention is gay carnival spread all over the South. I know you mentioned some clubs in to me when we were talking in Mobile, the uh, uh, crew of Apollo. Uh, had franchises in Houston, Dallas, Shreveport, um, Mobile, I think, Birmingham, um, Memphis. It's just, uh, it's incredible. And Baton Rouge. The Baton Rouge crew of Apollo, uh, which was formed in the mid-70s, is still flourishing. They have thousands of members. They're floating in the money. Whereas in New Orleans, Apollo doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So I so, guess in a sense, these uh, carnival organizations uh, reflect and also help create these separations or the uh, the structures that already exist in in these uh, in these societies, right? In New Orleans society. Yeah, one, I, think could, I think you could say that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So one thing that's I I apologize. One thing that you talk about here, and that's something that. Uh, is really popular right now. You talk about the role of drag and camp in gay culture and how has that has changed uh, across uh, over time in gay Mardi Gras in New Orleans. So w- what do you think happens there? Uh, what exactly are you asking? No, there's a section in the book that you talk about the importance of drag and camp, and you mm-hmm. say that that changed uh, over time in, in these gay carnivals. Well, I think camp is still uh, prominent. I, I think uh, camp is just a way of, of um, making fun, poking fun. Um, I think that's still I think that still exists. Um, and the drag has always been, um, uh, you know, in the carnival, uh, in the clubs, you you have a queen. It's always going to be a guy in drag. So there's that. But it's not the, you know, the um, the sort of uh, being in drag isn't so much of a statement anymore. Do you know what I mean? It's it, mm-hmm. it can't. It's it's not a it's not a shock anymore. So um, you know, with this sort of commodification of drag, as we could say. Uh, but I think the clubs now focus more on. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, socializing. I think that's really important as it was in the past. And, um, you know, you could even say that because it's more open because there's no threat anymore, it's almost like, um, there isn't this, uh, force of creativity trying to burst forth anymore. Do you know what I mean? It's like, well, we can just put on a ball. It, we, it doesn't have to be shocking anymore. It's, but in the past, the balls were so avant-garde in a way. Uh, it, it's, it's like I have to express myself because I can't express myself in society. Now, mm-hmm. now uh, the LGBTQ plus community can express in certain, you know, certain areas of society. So it's, it's not this. Um, this race, this this uh, this force to, uh, I have to be, I have to uh, express myself. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so it brings me to something that you also mentioned here, right? You, one of the conclusions that you come up when you wrap up the book is this idea of the acceptance of homosexuality, the assimilation, if you will. Yes. In that process, something is lost. What do you think was lost? Uh, you know, I think um, just if you lose this edge to your presentations, uh, a lot of the balls, quite seriously, nowadays just seem like the rehashing, um, you know, um, 
balls from the past. It's it's not really avant-garde. Uh, you don't have balls where um, the uh, the costumes are uh, aliens from outer space in drag. You know that type of thing. It's just a, or the uh, citizens of Atlantis have survived and they're all sea creatures. You know, it's just these mind-boggling ideas that they had back then. Now it's everything is just watered down. So, um, you know, it's a double-edged sword, Isabel. With assimilation and acceptance, you lose you lose that edge. You become like everyone else. The balls tend to be like every, all the balls seem the same these days. There's really no um, uh, uh, super creativity like there there was in the past. I, I you know I think this could be different. Uh, I think I think uh, I think the crews need to re-inject new members, maybe straight, mixed. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how it's going to play out. Um, a lot of uh, crews are struggling just to survive. And why do you consider the radical fairies an exception to that? I, you you mentioned this on, on mm-hmm. the book. Well, um, radical fairies represent um, a very uh, important movement, I think, within the LGBT movement. Well, it's a, it's mostly gay men, um, but they, they do have women in their group in New Orleans. I think uh, they don't want to assimilate. They want to maintain their own sort of hyper gay identity instead of, um, you know, uh, uh, some of them are anti-marriage. Some of them are uh, more interested in sexual expression. It's it's these types of uh, non-assimilation ideas that have, uh, you know, they, they've kept up with this. And there is a certain edge to that, I feel, you know? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. So that there's like a bit of a difference between what they're doing. It's more, uh, uh, it's they're not as interested in being mainstream as I, from what I gather, you believe the traditional gay organizations are more, uh, are assimilated into the larger society, right? I I'd never had a chance to go to their Mardi Gras ball, but I attended the Prince of Perversion ball in 2015, and I agree with you. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a very interesting phenomenon. There's there's a there's sort of a backlash to all of the things that are going on politically, and um, um, it's 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 called non-assimilation, and there mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's definitely a movement. I'm I'm not sure how far that's going to go, but it's um, I think it's I think a good analogy could be like black identity. Like we want we want our own culture. We want our African culture. Uh, and that's a, a very generalized analogy, but um, mm-hmm. you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, well, uh, I like to conclude this, this uh, interview, since this is a podcast for and by people who love books, with what I call my three book club questions. Okay. <laughs> the first question is if there was any particular book that inspired or informed Unveiling the Muse. Well, Yes. And um, if you're at all interested in traditional Mardi Gras in New Orleans, you need to run out and buy this book. It's called Mardi Gras in New Orleans. It's by Henri Schindler. That's H-E-N-R-I Schindler. And he's a designer, an expert on carnival. He uh, designs a lot of, he still designs uh, many parades for the traditional crews. It's just a very succinct, uh, very well written, uh, with lots of illustrations about traditional carnival in New Orleans. Now, in this book, he had pictures of a very important figure in gay carnival, which I didn't know at the time when I had this book in the early 2000s. And this was, um, this guy was named Elmo Ave. And he, he really was one of the people that crafted these first Mardi Gras crews. And he had a couple of photographs of him in costume and um, just trying to figure out who he was in what context, um, you know, someone who was re- writing about traditional carnival got me to thinking about um, how, uh, you know, we needed to, a couple of things. We needed to uh, create the history of gay carnival uh, write about it and make sure that it it uh, was evident in history, and also 
um, how traditional carnival influenced gay carnival. Definitely. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And uh, my second question would be, <laughs> during uh-huh. the process of researching and writing your book, did you come across any story, any subject, any character that you didn't have time to really dive in more deeply, but you wish someone else would write a book about? Um, I think this person, Michael Hickerson, uh, uh, he's... Um, He's a black queen who uh, has done so much in New Orleans. He has so many stories to tell. I didn't get a chance to really highlight him, but he was not only involved in uh, gay carnival, he was in the cruise. He helped form the first black crew. Uh, He tried to form, like I said, one in the 80s. That didn't work. In the late 90s, he helped form um, the crew of Moembo. He was also a grand marshal in the Southern Decadence Festival, which is another important festival in the city that which happens at the end of the summer um and just uh, i think several people now are thinking about researching black gay history in new orleans i think that would be really important at this point mm-hmm. and finally what are you working on next well um i've been very busy as <laughs> Uh, my next book comes out um, early next year, and what I've found during my research is um, a lot of uh, groups of photographs which are unpublished. And if you look at uh, my carnival book, you'll see at the very beginning there's some vintage uh, black and white photographs from the early 50s. And this is by a photographer, Jack Robinson, and he's a very uh, interesting character. He was from Mississippi. He went to school at Tulane, and he started uh, 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 photographing the city. He eventually moved to New York, but the photographs that he made in New Orleans, he did photograph uh, Gay Carnival in the French Quarter. And if it weren't for him, I don't think I could have written my carnival book because this was really, I saw the genesis of the first cruise in the streets of the French Quarter. And people who participated in the early 50s went on to form the first gay crew in 1958. So his name is Jack Robinson. What, what I'm hoping to do is a whole series of this, uh, of this unpublished work. It's all about the history of New Orleans. Uh, we would take um, 100 photographs, write extensive captions, and you know contextualize this work. So this book is called A Sojourn in Paradise. He lived in New Orleans in the early 1950s, so it's Jack Robinson in 1950s New Orleans. And there's just a lot of a uh, lot more information about why New Orleans was so accepting and was this kind of paradise in the early 50s. Fantastic photographs, more more information. Uh, I didn't have time in the Carnival book to really explore that, but this is this is what I've done in this book. So that'll be out. Early uh, next year, University. Wow, Press, I, oh, sorry, University Press of Mississippi. Wonderful! I'm really looking forward to that because, yes, uh, when I opened your book and I looked at those photos, I, right. I was curious. Yeah. I wanted to know more about them and about the, mm-hmm. the person behind them. So, hopefully, you'll come back and we'll t- get to chat about those. Just, just one more thing about Jack yes. Robinson. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it, it's it's uh, it's that one of the uh, twists of fate, I guess. And this is how history becomes known, I suppose. Um, He was in the right place at the right time. He just photographed his friends. He was experimenting with photography. And he ended up documenting a really important period of the history of New Orleans. I can't say that enough. (laughs) It was just amazing. If he hadn't taken these photographs, he not only photographed um, uh, the costumes that would become the first gay crews but he photographed artists he photographed uh, uh places that no longer exist in new orleans very um very interesting person i mean he moved to new york and became a famous fashion photographer he's pretty much well known for that but um i'm yeah it's it was a pleasure to do extensive research on this guy he is um he is uh, uh, definitely someone uh, to look, look for in the future. Definitely. I can imagine. Well, Howard, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. 
And, You're very welcome. Yes. And to our listeners, thank you for listening to another episode of New Books and Gender Studies by the New Books Network. I just spoke to Howard Phillips Smith about his book, Unveiling the Muse, The Lost History of Gay Carnival in New Orleans. I am Isabel Machado, and until next time.